You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 10th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday the 10th of November, this is Monocle House View. Today, the French president accuses NATO of being brain dead. Is this a change of tone for Emmanuel Macron? And if so, who's he talking to? I'll be joined by my guest Florence Biedermann, the AFP's London bureau chief. Also ahead, is there an appetite for a President Bloomberg? We'll consider whether the media mogul might have missed his moment. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and welcome to the Sunday Monocle House View. I'm Georgina Godwin and it's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, joining me for coffee and buns, courtesy of the Monocle Café, is Florence Biedermann, who is London Bureau Chief for the AFP. Uh, Florence, in fact, you want to have your bun later because of sticky fingers. Yes, not during uh, the (laughs) programme. I'm afraid it will deconcentrate me. Now we're compelled to include some discussion on the news today too, though we will ensure it doesn't get in the way of our coffee at least, even if we're delaying the pleasure of the bounds. Let's start in France because President Macron has been throwing some very colourful language around of late. It was only recently that he angered many with comments that seemed to target migrants from Eastern Europe. The phrase take back control also brought to mind leaders that one wouldn't ordinarily associate with the young centrist Macron. So Florence, is this a change of tone for the president? And if so, what's driving it? Well, it certainly uh, puts more focus on this uh, complete change. I, I would say it's, it's an evolution, like uh, he feels his main uh, contender for the next presidential election uh, is uh, the far-right party of Marine Le Pen. And like every other, other leader in Europe, I mean, he has to take into consideration the fact that migration is a real issue for, for, for the people. Like it, it's not as as much as the crisis of 2015, but it still plays a big role. So he has to to, to say something on this. Uh, but he was never, you know, the weak one on border, etc. Like he he was, he has kind of this middle line, like in many other topics, you know, it's neither right nor left. Like he will talk like uh, someone on the left by saying he has uh, empathy with the, uh, the fake, now the migrants, etc. But on the other side, he will take measures, political measures uh, to 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 rein uh, to rein in uh, illegal uh, migration, I- including tougher conditions for for migrants to come and establish themselves in France. So that's the kind of measure he's taking now. And obviously, I mean, it's linked to 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 the situation in France, where uh, the extreme right is still very much. Uh, standing its ground. Mm. Now, his latest jibe accusing NATO of being brain dead, it sounds like he's been reading Donald Trump's bedtime stories. Yeah, that that's also very much his Jupiterian style, you know, like sometimes it's provocative, but uh, there is also reasons to, to make some provocation on the topic. Uh, he's blunt, much more blunt than many other leaders. Sometimes he's, uh, I think, uh, completely in control of the fact that he's not that diplomatic. Uh, and definitely this is kind of a provocation. But behind this is, uh, is a reality and a question to all the European leaders uh, on the fact that uh, Trump is more or less turning its back to Europe uh, and that 
this is not a, a new issue, but it's more and more pressing now, and that Europe doesn't have the means to, to defend itself and should should have the means to, to create its own army, its own defense. I mean, this, but this has been a topic uh, in the whole history of the EU. Uh, what, what makes it really urgent now is, uh, is Donald Trump. And also, even if Donald Trump is not re-elected, I mean, I think the idea of Macron is to have a powerful Europe. This is what he has been saying and arguing for since, since uh, he's in power. A powerful Europe that can be a player between those big blocks that are China, uh, Russia and the United States. So uh, whether it's uh, the reason is Trump's presence in the White House or not. I mean, I think his idea is to, to, to have this uh, powerful Europe. But the reaction, and especially the German reaction, was not very encouraging. Like, uh, for the Germans, you know, uh, Russia is much more of a close reality than for France somehow. You know, they have been divided. The, the Berlin won't fail like 30 years ago, but there is still this idea of uh, uh, East Germany being uh, uh, controlled by, by the Soviet Union. So for Eastern Europe uh, countries as a whole, and in this sense, you, you would put Germany more in the Eastern bloc with this geostrategic interest. I mean, Russia is really a very powerful and dangerous uh, power, uh, and they would certainly want uh, the guarantee of, uh, of America. I mean, this is something which you feel less in France, but which you feel very much in Germany. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he says it's brain dead. It's, it's, a, it's a very provocative and very strong quote. Uh, but certainly also uh, all the European leaders will have to think about it. What do they want? What do they expect of, of uh, this transatlantic alliance, which is not as as uh, guaranteed as before. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, of him attacking NATO in this way, is it a way then to, to, to just push his own agenda, which is, as we know, to have this, this integrated European defence force? It certainly is, and uh, you cannot blame him for for being the one who tries to to push uh, uh, the European interest. The way he's doing it uh, may not be the best. I, I don't know. <laughs> so I would say, but uh, definitely, it's you could say it's his own agenda, uh, uh, own political agenda too. His way of having some clout on the international uh, scene, but uh, definitely, he's also pinpointing real problem for the EU because he talked about NATO being branded. He also talked of Europe being on the edge of a precipice, which is also a, a very, very strong quote. And certainly uh, there are a series of problems in Europe, as everybody knows. Uh, there are some disagreements with Germany. Uh, so it, it's really a, a challenging time for, for the EU. Mm. I mean, he's been positioning himself really as a new international leader. Well, it's by default, I would say, uh, he's the only European leader with a strong majority in his uh, in his uh, in the Parliament, uh, with a clear agenda, and uh, with uh, no need of having an electoral alliance. So he's in in control so far in mm. in the country. Mm. I mean, in control, not total control, as the Yellow Vest crisis showed. Like there are some, but so is is the only one. So. Uh, Angela Merkel has been weakened. Everybody knows she will leave power. She's maybe also physically weakened. Who knows? Uh, and uh, she she has to make alliance to to survive. So he's young. He's 
that was said before. He has a vision. He has a vision for Europe. Certainly, he has a strategy. And uh, uh, so, at the moment in Britain, let's not talk about Brexit and the political situation. Uh, Spain, I think we we'll mention it maybe further, is also like trying to have a government. I mean, so de facto, he's the only European leader with uh, uh, ideas, with conviction, and with um, the, the the power of of uh, enacting uh, something on Europe. Maybe. Mm. I wonder if he can hang on to that majority because, of course, he too has elections coming up and he's got various domestic problems to confront. Gilets jaunes seems to have kind of leaked away, but there are other very strong domestic issues. Yeah, the gilets jaunes have not completely disappeared. I mean, yes, the movement itself, like they don't demonstrate anymore, but all the reasons to demonstrate, even if Macron is trying to tackle them one after the other, did not disappear. Plus, there is a very, very tricky and contentious issue right now. Uh, he's trying to reform the pension schemes, and that's an extremely, uh, an extremely uh, touchy subject in France. Like with some people losing advantage in in their reforms, of course, and uh, that is really the the next test for him. Like beginning of December, there will be also. A something that could be a big strike in the railways. And this is always, you know, the beginning of this movement that can last and last. And if it lasts, like approaching Christmas and all the people who will want to go and visit their family. Okay, let, let's see what it becomes. But that's definitely a, a very tricky issue. He started this reform plan with a kind of very uh, precise idea on what he wanted to do. Uh, and let's see what the result, because other governments have failed on this, have really failed and pulled out their plans. So let's see what he he managed to do between this social discontent, which you can still feel, and uh, what he aims to do. Mm. Uh, let's just have a quick chat about him and Brexit, because obviously he wants a soft Brexit. He would like to maintain the ties between, between France and the UK. But he's also been against any kind of extension. Well, I think he's not the only one. <laughs> because, let's get Brexit down, as uh, uh, Boris Johnson repeats every day. I mean, there is kind of a Brexit fatigue. I mean, in the UK, of course, uh, but also in Europe, like because uh, first of all, Macron didn't want, of course, Brexit. Like he's this European uh, with ideas on political integration, and so he didn't want it. So. You are left with a country that is plunged in this mayhem, in these problems, and at one point you will you will want to have some clarity. I think the adoption of the next budget, for example, you know, uh, the new commissaire, like since uh, uh, Britain is still in the in the uh, EU, it's so absurd they will have to to nominate a new commissaire just that they had this European election when they didn't want to be in Europe. So at one point this has to stop. So after that there will be maybe different tone on uh, how, how to tell uh, uh, Britain, like, okay, move on, um, try to find a solution. But also, this is also in the context of the fact that so far the EU has never refused any extension. And why? Uh, because they never wanted Brexit and they don't want to be the one who will give the opportunity to have a no-deal Brexit. So, at the same time, Macron, like other leaders, wants some clarity but also they don't want to be the one that will push the country towards a, a no deal. So uh, that being said, it can last. I mean, I imagine, I mean, I imagine, I don't want to imagine too much about Brexit <laughs> because it's difficult. Supposing on the 31st of January, there are still something, some things to be ironed at, whatever. 
I still don't see Europe refusing, you know, uh, including Macron. But he will be the one to say, oh, no, it's bad to, to have a, a tougher language on this. But in the end, I mean, uh, it's not in the interest of, of the EU to, to, to appear as the one who is pushing uh, uh, the UK to a no-deal Brexit. Because as you said, like Macron, like all the other European leaders, uh, want a close relationship with the UK. Mm-hmm. Now, a little bit earlier, there was a throwaway remark. You said something about if Donald Trump, God forbid, gets a second term. <laughs> it well, was, uh, <laughs> not on air. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, who might be his challenger? So we get to Bloomberg. Will he or won't he? I mean, is it's the billion-dollar question facing US presidential hopefuls on the Democratic Party side. Bloomberg is mulling jumping into the race. Now, he's a former mayor of New York, Crucially, he has plenty of cash at his disposal. I think his estimate net worth is more than $50 billion. Um, He'd certainly have a cash advantage over his rivals. Could that also put him at a disadvantage? Are Americans sick of billionaires dabbling in politics? Uh, that's very impressive. I mean, from a European perspective, like because another democratic candidate also uh, is a billionaire, like Tom Steyer. I mean, so it, it's really and and the president is a billionaire. So it's uh, as if you needed to be a billionaire to be in a race in, in United States. It's quite worrying. I find and, and also, I mean, all those men are, are over seventy. You know, so what strikes me in the the Bloomberg attempt because. It's not quite clear yet. He has not confirmed officially, you know. And everybody knows that he mulled the idea of being a candidate in previous election. It's like, you know, he's been dreaming of being a candidate. He never did it so far. Now he's 77. So maybe that would be the moment because in, uh, when he would be 81, 82, it, it will be a bit too late, maybe. So that's his last opportunity. But uh, yeah, is money enough? I mean, he has been launching this race maybe because he thinks Joe Biden as a, let's say, centrist candidate, is losing ground right now in his campaign. But why would Michael Bloomberg be so much more clever uh, and better than Joe Biden? I mean, then it's not only a question of money, but of being a politician and having IDs. And so, I mean, it's 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 quite interesting, but it's, it's pretty risky in a way mm. because he's another candidate in the center, if you can speak like that, for the Democrats compared with Bernie Sanders anyway. Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, said, we don't need billionaires. Billionaires shouldn't exist, which shows some kind of contradiction in this Democrat (laughs) party. Uh, So is it the best way, like to be another candidate in the center uh, for this election? Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're listening to Monocle's House View here with me, Georgina Godwin and Florence Biederman. Now, let's have a look at uh, the week that was and what we learned from the news headlines. Here's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit party, is unwilling to risk failing for the eighth time to win a seat in Britain's parliament. I thought very hard about this. How do I serve the cause of Brexit? I don't want to be in politics for the rest of my life. Very difficult to be in a constituency every day and at the same time be out across the United Kingdom. It is difficult to believe that Farage thought anything could be worse than the Buckingham by-election of 2010, in which he finished third behind a campaign fronted by a man dressed as a dolphin. But then Farage has the advantage of having seen the CVs of the fledgling Brexit party's other candidates. 
Jill Hughes, the Brexit Party's candidate for Batley and Spen, stood down after it was learned that she had once claimed to have descended to Earth from her birthplace on Sirius and that world governments were in league with aliens. We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. Timothy Vince, the Brexit Party's candidate in South Thanet, scene of two of Farage's seven failures to get elected to the House of Commons, gave an interview in which he appeared to get key details of EU history confused with a Dan Brown novel. The uh, Treaty of uh, Lisbon. The Treaty, uh, the the Treaty of Lisbon was signed in Lisbon, the clues oh, yeah, in the title. Yes, right. um, uh, but it was to replace, which is typical EU, they moved the goalposts. So the EU constitution, which was rejected by France and the Netherlands, was signed in the remains of the Temple of Jupiter, which is Roman for Zeus. And I'm just making the point that do we want our future to be determined by Greek and Roman mythology, which led to dictatorship? In fairness, Vince sounds like someone who would have been confused by a Dan Brown novel. This is an old wives' tale. The original one, in fact. We learned in the United States that President Donald Trump may be overestimating his command of the electorate, as voters in at least one state, where he cleaned up in 2016, declined to do as instructed in 2019. In Kentucky, which Trump won by 30 points en route the White House, he endorsed Republican Governor Matt Bevan in apocalyptic, yet self-regarding terms. And if you lose, they're going to say Trump suffered the greatest defeat in the history of the world. This was the greatest. You can't let that happen to me! Kentucky voters decided that this was a risk worth running and elected Democrat challenger Andy Bashir. Senate Majority Leader and hitherto staunch Trump defender Mitch McConnell, up for re-election in Kentucky next November, will have taken a keen interest in the exit polling. Elsewhere, we learn that North Macedonia is not taking well the knowledge that its recent change of name may have been in vain. The former Macedonia and former former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia hoped that adding the prefix North would quell Greece's whining about the Macedonia thing and speed North Macedonia into the EU. France's president, Emmanuel Macron, sparked considerable umbrage across the Balkans by saying non. We learned that there is at least one politician wondering if the office in which he has recently arrived might actually be too grand. Babajid Sanwaolu, newish governor of Lagos, has unilaterally abolished the honorific Your Excellency to which he was entitled in favour of Mr Governor. We also learned, if we went far enough down this rabbit hole, that there is a parallel universe in which Donald Trump is addressed, as some of America's founders believed the president should be, as Your Elective Highness or even Your Majesty. Thomas Jefferson was more correct than he can have known when he wrote to James Madison that this was the most superlatively ridiculous thing I ever heard of. And with that shining of sorely needed light into the murky gloaming of this week's news, for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you, Andrew. This is Monocle's House View on a Sunday morning, and still with me in the studio is AFP Bureau Chief Florence Biedermann. Uh, Florence, of course, the big thing that's happening today is the election in Spain. Uh, and as we look at the newspapers, both understandably El País and La Repubblica are looking at this. What are they saying? 
Well, El Pais just says, you know, I mean, states the fact that it's yeah, the fourth election in four years, uh, in the greatest of uncertainty. That's a headline, uh, because I mean, uh, uh, the, the the socialist Pedro Sanchez will manage uh, to win a previous election. Uh, form the majority with uh, Podemos, like, which is the extreme left uh, movement, and, and it couldn't hold. But the point is now, I mean, uh, the situation is not that different. And of course, the fear, which is also what La Repubblica uh, stresses, is that uh, there would be again uh, um, an election with no winner with a with a complete majority which mm. by the way is also perilous what will happen in this country <laughs> after <laughs> yes. the election so we, which is uh, no which is kind of a, a problem in all Europe now you have the two well established uh, traditional parties the socialist like the PSO on one side and the conservative uh, p- popular on the other and none of them has a majority why because there are those new players now on the extreme right like Vox which is pretty worrying, and on the extreme left, like Podemos, uh, who are, I mean, changing the game. And uh, in Spain, of course, uh, there is uh, the Catalonian question that also really uh, changed everything. So what would be the result of this election is just uh, uh, everybody's guess, and uh, probably, again, uh, there won't be a party with a, with a big majority. And this is this movement of traditional parties now losing ground and not having being uh, able to, to form majority is something that you see in many other countries in, around Europe too. Mm-hmm. It's it's the end of this traditional game, uh, the left, the right, or the conservative and the liberals. It, it doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah. So that's what this election will, uh, will reflect. And Vox is really interesting because it looks like for the first time in I think four decades, they'll actually have a, a meaningful presence in the Spanish parliament. Yeah, and this is... Again, like what happened also in Germany with the AfD in France, you see all these extreme right uh, movements uh, that are held by, I mean, uh, uh, social matters, immigration, I mean, all those uh, topics that have also probably helped uh, Brexit being voted. I mean, the discontent of voters that are lost, that cannot rely on traditional parties to find solutions because they are unhappy with, uh, with the situation. So that's uh, um, with regional differences, I would say it's, it's a bit of time. And certainly Vox is helped by the Catalonian question. I mean, this kind of separatist uh, and radical uh, uh, movement in, in Catalonia is certainly helping them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, a lot of what's driving this move to the right is concern about migrants, and that's something that uh, Develt picks up in, in Germany, saying that there are new roads for illegal migrants uh, that, that are kind of opening up across Europe. Yeah, this is the the headline uh, today. Uh, new roads, uh, th- I mean, not that new. It's through the Balkans, but they they pretend they they, they interrogated the, the the chief of police in Germany, uh, saying that there was a surge again of illegal migration uh, through this road, which goes through uh, Turkey, Greece, and Bosnia, and then you have also on uh, the front page, I mean, online page, an expert saying, well, uh, I understand why AFD like the right uh, is strong in Germany linked to to this uh, uh, to this new what they call this new 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 roads and uh, new surge uh, in illegal immigration and of course Germany is much closer to, to Bosnia than any other country so and you remember that the fact that Angela Merkel uh, 
uh, opened the door to uh, a million migrants was uh, the beginning of the end for her somehow. Mm. So this is, again, a, a very touchy subject in, in Germany and for all Europe. And then they also quote the, somebody in the Home Ministry saying that uh, the borders are not safe anymore. So I guess this will give some fuel again to, to, to the extreme right. I'm really interested to explore the language around this a little bit more because we use words like surge of migrants and we talk about them as if they are some great amorphous and horrible herd of people. And I think that often in the reporting of this, it's forgotten that these are people who are so desperate that they would face death in order to move away from their current circumstances. Yeah, that's what's so tragic and that we saw in this country recently, like... Uh, dozens of Vietnamese migrants dead in, in, in a container. This is certainly something that you should be careful uh, <laughs> with your language. Maybe mine is not good enough for that. Anyway, uh, yes, of course, it's human dramas. And what I found terrible, I mean, as a, as a journalist, but I, I guess it's maybe the same for everybody, is you, you get somehow used to it. I mean, you know, migrant boats capsizing, dozens of deaths, you know, who reacts? I mean, you, you cannot also react each time. But then there are some, you know, moments where you, the, the body of the little Syrian child was found on a beach. There are moments where <gasps> suddenly you realize what it's about. Mm. Uh, and yeah, what's tragic is that in daily life, I mean, uh, it seems so, so, something that happens daily and you, you you don't see what you can do about it. Yeah, of course, government will say, let's try to help the countries where these migrants come from. But when it's Iraq, when it's Syria, I mean, what are you going to do about it? So that's... Uh, um, so let's say uh, a human way of welcoming them um, would be so far the best solution, but I'm afraid it's not one that is at the agendas in in most European countries right now. Now, another big story, of course, was the 30-year anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down. That happened yesterday. Um, but Le Mans picks up on the fact that there are new divisions in Europe, and in fact, those old fault lines still exist. Very much so, like... Uh, they say the new, they, they speak about the new divisions or the new walls. They have a whole dossier. And uh, you see this difference uh, of between the uh, Eastern uh, European countries with this history with uh, communism, a, a very different history than the one on the West and the kind of misunderstandings uh, between them. The, uh, the fact that this Eastern country feel like they are maybe not heard enough inside the EU. Uh, the fact that there are now more authoritarian regime in Poland, in Hungary, with leaders who uh, have different ways of uh, uh, looking at <clears throat> freedom of the press, of the judiciary, so which which create tension in Europe. And we we come back to the first topic of Macron saying, "Be careful, Europe is on the edge of precipice." Definitely, it's there is a, a kind of existential crisis uh, in the EU with this difference uh, between two blocks uh, still uh, more and more. Uh, uh, present. Yeah. Uh, finally, let's let's talk about royalty and television. So this is the Crown. Uh, the Sunday Times has a big uh, story on its front page. The Crown is slammed over the Queen's affair. Now I just have to tell you that I hardly watch television because I have to do so much reading. But in the last couple of days, I've had a bit of time, and never having watched the Crown before, yesterday I binge watched almost the entire first series. I thought it was marvelous. 
So you will be very excited by the third one because I understand <laughs> from the Sunday time that it's the most spicy. Uh, and uh, they are, but w what shocks the Sunday Times and the royal experts is the fact that they are hinting that Her Majesty could have had kind of a romantic involvement with uh, her racing manager. Uh, so this is kind of a cream de l'aise majesté and some uh, former uh, royal advisor are really shocked by, by that. So I don't know how this uh, the series will be perceived here. Uh, Buckingham Palace refused to comment. They refused from the start. They always said, no, we, we, we were not involved in this story and we are not going to comment. Uh, and maybe it's better because there are also some allusion to the fact that Princess Anne uh, is seen in bed with uh, Camilla Parker Bowles' husband. Uh, so it's quite uh, the, the, the third series is seems to be quite controversial uh, and really interesting. Absolutely, <laughs> really, really interesting. And I actually learned a huge amount. I'm not an avid royal watcher, but so watching the crown, you think, oh yeah, I remember that. Or how interesting that this is how these things work. One thing, uh, just very quickly before we go, one thing that that struck me was uh, talking about David or the, or the or the, uh, the the king that that uh, that stepped down. Um, and his wife and their life in France. How were they perceived, Mrs. Simpson and Edward, in France? Oh, I'm at the time. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> in retrospect, you know, they they they, I, they they were not, you know, kind of a huge topic. Of course, yes, the fact that he resigned. But after that, you know, also he seemed to be a bit close uh, to uh, uh, the German powers, Nazis in Germany. I mean, they were kind of a bit apart. They were running this life on Côte d'Azur. They were not really part of of the landscape or the social or political landscape in France. Well, I can. I cannot wait for the third series. Uh, Florence, thank you so much. That's all we have time for today. Our supervising producer was Ben Ryland and uh, our studio manager was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>